Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. again if I didn't have a chance to meet you earlier my name is Ian uh, thanks again for being here uh, this morning really excited to uh, jump into week two of our uh, brand new sermon series here through the book of first Peter uh, called citizens as strangers and so thank you Andrew for reading that text Andrew's got that deep announcer voice that I'm always jealous of I know my deep booming voice is something to behold but Andrew's got that you hear that bass tone and there was solid uh, thanks for reading that for us Andrew um, if you missed last week, let me just briefly recap where we started. So we're going to be spending, as I mentioned last week, the first kind of 10 weeks of our sermon series as a church in the book of First Peter leading up to Advent. And last week, we kind of introduced this theme of the idea of living as citizens who are strangers, which seems like a paradox on the surface. But the reality for those of you in this room who are in Christ is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, which therefore makes us strangers to the world around us. And so we want to explore in this sermon series specifically, how do we live in the tension of that? And how do we live in the tension of that with the confidence of the good news of the gospel? Because I, I think that's what Peter is calling us to in this letter. And so this morning, as we continue on in chapter one, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the connection between hope and holiness, hope and holiness. Now, hope is a really powerful thing, right? When you give anyone any real tangible hope, whether it be a sports team Right, maybe a sports team is just on the brink of everything falling apart, but then they win the game and they have a little bit of hope. Right, this is very much how I feel this morning about my Florida State Seminoles. Right, just the tiniest, tiniest little bit of hope that we're holding on to. I start thinking delusional things. Right, you give hope and all of a sudden things change. Right, maybe it's a student who's failing a class and the teacher says, "You know what? You still have a shot at this." Right now, all of a sudden there's hope. Maybe it's a relationship that's been a little rocky and someone says, "You know, this is fixable. There's something that can be done here." Maybe it's the patient who is facing a very serious illness or sickness or cancer, when you give someone hope, when hope is introduced into the equation, it leads to a change of behavior, right? Hope leads to a change of behavior. So we saw last week that Christians, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we've been born again into what Peter calls a living hope. So it's not a mere hope of the world around us. No, it's a living hope that is sure and secure in Christ. And in the same way that hope leads to change in all sorts of earthly situations, so too should our living hope lead to a change of behavior in our own lives. Peter draws a, a connection between hope and holiness specifically. He views hope as leading to holiness. They're the companions of the Christian life as we go through this world trying to embrace that identity of citizens as strangers. But this morning, if I can be honest with you, I'm a little concerned that we as, as the church, God's people, have adopted a real faulty posture towards the idea of holiness. I mean, how do you feel when someone says, oh, you know, Jim, Jim's just really holy. Like if someone said that about you, what would you think? Would you be honored? I think most of us think, ooh, that's not good, right? There's maybe a misunderstanding going on here. They probably think I'm stuffy, real religious, don't have any fun at all, right? Holy people don't have fun. That's the connotation there. Uh, maybe you cringe and say, ooh, this means that uh, somebody has misunderstood. Maybe they think I'm holier than thou, 
right? And so we come to this idea of holiness this morning, I think, from an improper posture sometimes. We can think that holiness is uh, something to be more ashamed of when Peter is calling us to holiness as a central part of what it means to live as citizens or strangers. Now, of course, there are some things we should avoid in that wrong understanding of holiness, and we'll define it properly today. But I think we might need a change of posture this morning. Rather than being wary of being labeled as holy, Peter views the elect exiles he's writing to, Christians who have been chosen by God, who are scattered all across the world, representing another kingdom in the midst of all these earthly kingdoms. He said that they ought to be defined by holiness, by a life that is obedient, by a life that reflects the holiness of God himself. And so this morning, we're going to jump right into that and ask the Lord to give us a vision for what it looks like to not only live in light of having hope, but to live in a way that is holy, that is enticing to the people around us as they get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And so before we jump into the text, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask the Lord to stir that up within us and to speak clearly through his word. So would you pray with me this morning? Uh, God, we thank you uh, once again for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. And even as we, we spend some time looking at how Peter describes the word of God, I pray that you would stir up our affections to see the beauty of Jesus, that we would be drawn to repentance, to turn from our sin, and to put our faith in you this morning through what is shared in the book of 1 Peter. So Lord, would you move me out of the way? May the words that I shared this morning be from you. Holy Spirit, may you speak to the hearts and the situations and the circumstances that walk into this room and may we leave today knowing that we have a sure and secure living hope that's found in you, Jesus, and that changes everything for us. Would you give us insight into that? Show us the ways we're missing it. Encourage us with the Holy Spirit. And may this time just be a real ordinary but beautiful time just sitting at your feet studying who you are. So bless us as we do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at these 12 verses, here's the, here's the main idea. Here's where we're headed. In response to being recipients of salvation that's been promised in the scriptures, we are called to live in holiness through Christ. In response to being recipients of salvation that have been promised in the scriptures, we are called to live in holiness through Christ. And we're going to see this through three different movements in this text, three different calls that Peter gives to his readers and to us as his hearers this morning. There's a call to behold, first and foremost, a call to holiness, second, and a call to fear, thirdly. A call to behold, a call to holiness, and a call to fear. Let's kick it off with a call to behold. Look again with me at verses 10 through 12. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter begins by saying, concerning this salvation. Now Peter's drawing back to what he had just said and what we looked at last week in chapter one. Namely, this salvation, Peter says, is the fact that Christians have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they've been given an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is being guarded on all sides for them. This inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, and we are being kept for our inheritance by God's power. 
That's the salvation that Peter is reflecting on. But as he continues to just his mind is running through all of these blessings of salvation. I think he pauses here for a moment because he doesn't want his readers. And I don't think he wants us to think that God just came up with this on the fly. Right. This wasn't something that was like plan B or C or D in God's mind. God was not procrastinating on this. Now, some of us like to claim, hey, I'm the best procrastinator out there, right? That's not a characteristic of God. So I'm not sure if we should shoot for that. Maybe I need to apply that to my own life sometimes, right? But God's not a procrastinator, right? No, no, God here, according to Peter, from eternity past, long promised in the Old Testament, has said that this salvation would come. This is not plan B or plan C. God is not just making stuff up on the fly. No, he is totally sovereign in control of this. And Peter says, we can look back at the Old Testament. We can look back at the scriptures and see that God had this in mind all along. And so Peter here points to the prophets specifically. He says the prophets who prophesied. The prophets served as the mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament. And it says that they prophesied about the grace that was to come in Christ. That they searched and inquired carefully. They were trying to determine when their prophecies, when their messages of grace when their messages of hope would be fulfilled, when they would come true. And Peter says the Lord revealed to them that they were serving somebody else, that this was not to come during their time. That makes the prophets and the Old Testament, what they're doing is sort of setting the table for the meal, but they don't get to enjoy the meal. Somebody else gets to enjoy that meal, but the prophets, the Old Testament, everything leading up to the salvation revealed in Jesus is a setting of the table. The meal, the the stuff to have the meal is out It's ready before them, but the meal will not yet be enjoyed. They know that meal is going to be awesome. I mean, we're talking like some filet mignon, like some really good stuff here, but they don't get to enjoy it. So the Lord says it's for somebody else. Now, this does not mean that these prophets didn't have a relevant message to their original hearers, right? There's all sorts of things that they said to to their people in their time that is super important for us. But what this does mean is that all of their prophesying, All of their looking forward, all of their communication culminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, understanding what that original message was only deepens our appreciation and our worship of Christ who came and fulfilled all that the Old Testament is pointing to. And see, Peter says that Jesus is the pinnacle of all preceding history. That Jesus is the whole point of this story. That from Genesis to Malachi in our Old Testament, and then continuing in our New Testament, it's all about Jesus. He's the main point. He's the main idea. Now, briefly, I want to draw out some implications of that, because I don't know about you, but I don't always get that sense when I read the Old Testament. Right, like, Peter quotes Leviticus here, so we're going to talk about Leviticus. I'm going to try to apply what I'm practicing to you right now. Uh, But the Old Testament can be hard, right? The Old Testament can be difficult to, to get our way through. And so I just want to draw out a few implications for what this means for our interactions with the scriptures. Okay, number one, the Bible is one unified story. The Bible is one unified story from Genesis to Revelation. One of the earliest heresies in the church, heresies, false teaching, was from a man named Marcion. And Marcion showed up kind of at the end of the first century into the second. He's reading the Old Testament. He's hearing these stories about Jesus. And he says this, well, I'm looking at the Old Testament, and there seems to be this really wrathful, vengeful, angry God. And then I flip to the New Testament. Here comes Jesus, right? Long hair, sandals, kind of flowing, floating through the earth, giving out free hugs. That's his idea of Jesus in the New Testament. And he says, this can't be the same God. 
there's something else going on here. So this God of the Old Testament is not the God of Jesus, and he puts a giant wedge between the Old and the New Testament and just rejects it because Jesus is something altogether new. Now, we would never say that out loud, but functionally, how much do we operate like that? Right? Functionally, when we read the Old Testament, do we just disconnect it from Jesus, disconnect it from this one unified story? I think we can slip into this all the time, and Peter is warning us here. He says that this salvation about Jesus was prophesied from old. I mean, think about this for a moment. When the New Testament comes around, it says that the apostles were reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. You know what their Bible was? Not 1 Peter. It's the Old Testament. It's the scriptures of old. And so they are looking at the Old Testament and showing people the story of redemption that's found there. And so we should not be like Marcy. And rather, rather than adopting that posture, we as Christians should read the Old Testament like we do a really good movie or a really good book that has a surprise ending that like explains everything we've just watched. Right? So think of like the sixth sense, right? Like you get to the end and you're like, I'm about to ruin it. It's like 25 years old. The statute of limitations are up, right? You get to the end, you're like, oh, he's dead the whole time, right? Now, what do you do? You go, okay, awesome. But you go back and watch it again, right? And as you watch it again, the whole time I'm thinking, does anybody actually talk to him directly, right? Like, did they mess up somewhere? No, it's a beautiful piece of cinematic art because the end surprises you, but then you use the end to explain and reread everything that was leading up to that. That should be our interaction with the Old Testament. Because as Christians, we know the ending. We know that Jesus shows up. We get to feast at the table. And so now we look at Christ and we go back to the Old Testament and we reread it. We have fresh eyes. We get to see it through the lens of Jesus. And so the Bible is one unified story of grace and redemption. That leads to our second point because, of course, grace and redemption is centered on Jesus. And so secondly, the Bible is centered on Jesus Christ. Peter says explicitly here, that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Which again, Peter's writing to a suffering people. And we in this fallen world oftentimes will be a suffering people. Be encouraged that at the end of suffering for the Christian is glory. Because that's the way of our Savior. And so Jesus, he goes through these sufferings, but then he has these subsequent glories that the prophets wrote about. Now the suffering of Christ is what caused a great deal of hang up in the early church. Right, even in the disciples' lives. Remember, Peter is the one. He confesses that, that Jesus is the Lord. And then Jesus says, cool, now I'm going to go and be crucified. And I'm going to suffer. And that's when Peter, good old Peter, we love him, right, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Says, no way. Right, the Son of God rebukes him. Peter's got to hang up with suffering. We, we see this in Luke 24, too, after Jesus is raised. Super important passage, Luke 24. It's on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected. He's kind of veiled himself. These two disciples that are walking are talking about Jesus. And, and he kind of asks, he shows up. He's like, hey, you know, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? And they say, well, there was this guy, Jesus. They kind of recount the story. He came. We thought he was the one that was going to deliver us from our oppressors. We thought he was the one who was going to usher in the kingdom of God. But since he was crucified, he can't be the one. What's their hang up? Suffering. The suffering of Christ. And then Jesus says this in Luke 24, verses 25 following. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then I wish we knew what this was right here, but verse 27, beginning with Moses, author of the first five books of the Bible, 
and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I wish we could have been there for that. Amen. Jesus walks from Genesis into Exodus, into Leviticus, into Deuteronomy, and he says, this is all about me. This is all about me. The Old Testament is a Christian book because it is centered on Christ. So Jesus is reading his Bible that way. Are we reading our Bibles that way? Are we fighting to see that Jesus is the hero of the story? He is the whole point. We have to fight to see him in it. Otherwise, we're going to miss the whole main idea. And so secondly, the Bible is centered on Jesus. Third, the Bible is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Peter attributes the Spirit here as the one who was indicating and predicting to the prophets what to write. See, although the Bible is 66 books written by many different authors spanning over 1,000, 1,500 years, the Bible is also one book with one author. Right? The Holy Spirit is the grand storyteller of redemption and grace that is centered on Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one who inspired these writings and preserved them so that they're the very words of God communicated in the words of men. A beautiful interplay between the divinity of the Holy Spirit inspiring those scriptures for us and also the fact that we can read personalities into them. Peter writes with a certain style. Paul writes with a different style. It's the words of God communicated in the words of men. Now, I think Peter knew this maybe more intimately than anybody else. Right, you think about Peter's life. He's following around Jesus for three years as his disciple. He saw him do just incredible, inexplicable things in his ministry. Right, you think, too, Jesus like, shows up in the transfiguration on the Mount of Olives next to Elijah and Moses, and Peter's there. Like, he's seeing this all go down. Peter sees the resurrected Jesus, but you know where the light bulb comes on? It's not with Jesus on the beach when they're having that weird do you love me conversation, if you're familiar with that passage. It's not there. It's Acts chapter 2. It's Pentecost. It's when the promised indwelling Holy Spirit shows up. Then all of a sudden, Peter, good Peter, we love, right, all over the place, Peter sticks his head out of the window, filled with the Holy Spirit, and starts as an uneducated fisherman unpacking what the rabbis had missed all along, that Jesus was at the center. What caused him to do that? Well, it's nothing in Peter. I can tell you that. It's nothing in Peter. It's the Holy Spirit's illuminating him, coming alive the story of Christ that is found in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit must illuminate our mind to understand what's in here. We need the Holy Spirit. Are we interacting with the Holy Spirit? Are we asking him to give us insight? Are we asking him to give us understanding about who Jesus is? It's interesting, too. Peter says that this Spirit is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christ. There's a connection between the Holy Spirit and the word of God and Jesus. I love what one commentator says. It says, Jesus is therefore not simply one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. Right? The prophets are speaking of him, but he is speaking through them. He is holding this story together. And then number four, the most incredible truth out of this for us is that the Bible is for us. I don't know if you caught it in those three verses. Four times, Peter says that this is for you, or to you, or for you. The Bible's not about us, but it is for us. It's important we keep that distinction. The Bible's not about us, but it is for us. Right? The scriptures have been given for our benefit. They've been given so that we can understand all of these incredible truths and promises about the gospel centered in on Jesus Christ. 
And what an encouragement to us today that we can be separate 2,000 years from the time that Jesus lived on this earth, but yet the scriptures have preserved this story for us. It is for our benefit. Again, another, another quotation that, that captures those four points. The cosmic sweep of God's redemption is all centered in Christ, whom we know and love. The petty dreams of earth's little tyrants shrivel before the majesty of the kingdom of God, ministered by prophets and apostles, but now realized for those who know Jesus Christ. What an incredible reality that if you're in this room and you know even just the tiniest little bit about Jesus, you know more than the Old Testament prophets. This is for you. And so I have to ask, do we treasure the word of God in this way? When we open up the scriptures, if we're opening up the scriptures, do we spend time in God's word like this? I know I don't. I'm the pastor, right? So I'm guessing you are struggling alongside me in this. And so are we asking the Holy Spirit to provide illumination? Are we fighting to see Jesus at the center of this grand story of redemption that's found in the grace of the gospel? Do we view this as a gift to us? Do we view this as a gift that is for our benefit? It is for our good. Those are questions I want you to ask yourself. But before we move on, Peter ends with this really interesting line about the angels. This will help reinforce the point here. He says in verse 12, he talks about the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven, who preached the good news to you. He says, things into which angels long to look. It's an interesting choice by Peter. That word long, it can also mean to lust after. It's to be so beholden by something, it's to almost be obsessed with it. It's a passion for something that if you saw in your friend, you'd be like, whoa, that's a little much there, right? Let's calm down. It's just a football game or it's just a girl, right? Whatever it might be, there's this obsession. There's something that's caught their attention, so they're lusting after it. And then to look means to stoop down. Like remember when you were a kid and you like weren't tall enough to see over the counter and you're like trying to creep your way up? That's what Peter says the angels are doing from heaven looking down. That the angels are longing, they're stooping, they're straining to look over the expanse of heaven to behold the work of redemption. This is why in Luke 15, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Sometimes we get some wacky theology about angels. You know what the angels are primarily doing? Rejoicing in heaven. When people turn to Christ, when Jesus saves them, they are rejoicing, they're straining over heaven. They're trying to see the good news of the gospel being applied to a people who desperately needs it. And we are the recipients of that. We're the recipients of that. Are we reading the scriptures in the same way that the angels are longing, obsessively looking to celebrate redemption? Are we beholding the word of God? It's one thing to look. It's another thing to behold, isn't it? We can look at the scriptures all day. I think that we are called to behold Christ in the scriptures. And by God's good design, you know what happens when we behold? We become that. As image bearers of God who are designed to worship him, we are wired to become what we behold. And so the King's Church, may we be a people who behold Christ who is found in his word so that we might be changed more and more into him. I'm not trying to guilt you into reading your Bible. I want you to get swept up in the incredible nature of the gospel where you can't help but crack open this page. There's a difference between those two. Just as a practical side note, we need help doing that. We need community to do that, which is why our city groups are structured around this. 
And so if you need help trying to behold Christ in the scriptures, the best thing you could do is get into a community of people who are trying to do it as well. And so that's why our city groups are structured around this. So let's intentionally spend time in community beholding Christ in his word. So that's a call to behold. Secondly, let's look at a call to holiness. Look at verse 13 once again. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Now, it's important to note a transition here. This is the very first commandment in the letter. So Peter starts last week with a doxology, with a, let me tell you all about the gospel. Let me tell you how awesome our God is. Let me tell you about this incredible salvation that's been revealed to you. And he starts with that for a very important reason. Because the indicatives of the gospel, the truths about Jesus, how he has acted to save us, always come before the imperatives, the commands, the response, what to do with that good news that we've received. And you'll notice the word therefore. Therefore marks that off so helpfully. Peter's saying, therefore, because of this salvation that we did not earn, that you received, that you remember the born again analogy, you are born, you don't contribute to that, right? This is all a gift from God. Because of that, therefore, live like this. If we flip that, we lose the gospel. If we flip that, this is not good news. This is things that you have to do in order to get right with God, and there's not enough that you can do to have that happen. And so we have to be careful to keep the order there, what it is. So Peter says, therefore, therefore. And he says this phrase that's crucial to the rest of the book. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. We're trying to talk about inhabiting this tension of citizens as strangers. How we do that with confidence is right here. We live in this life and all the tensions and all the hardships and all the longing for things to be set right by setting our hope fully on the grace that is coming to us through Jesus Christ. We set our hope fully on this. Well, how do we do that? Well, the rest of this letter is going to tell us how to do that. But right here, he gives us two things. He says basically that we set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed to us, first and foremost, by preparing your minds for action. Your Bible might have a footnote there. It's an awesome footnote. I'm going to read mine. It says, the Greek literally says, girding up the loins of your mind. That'll preach right there, right? Church, gird up the loins of your mind. That's what Peter is saying here, right? This is, a, this is an odd phrase for us, but here's the imagery. Back thousands of years ago, uh, both men and women out in public would wear these robes, basically. By the way, I love my robe. I've said that publicly. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. Right, robe is probably one of my favorite possessions that I have. Uh, but out in, in public in the old times, they would wear these robes. Too hot in Florida, I get it. But maybe in December we could have a robe month. Um, I think that'd be awesome. So they're wearing these robes. Even the soldiers would wear robes. And what would happen is if you needed to get into combat, you're not wanting to run around with all this stuff like flowing around you, right? And so the commandment was to gird up your loins, to take the bottom of that robe and tuck it into your belt. So that way you are prepared. You are ready to move. You are ready to run around. You are ready for combat. And so Peter says, that's the imagery. Gird up the loins of your mind. So whatever that imagery is, he says, apply it to your mind. That your thinking needs to be prepared. That it needs to be energized. By the way, this is what the Lord told the Israelites to do when they were leaving Egypt in the Exodus. 
right, we're going to see that Peter's continuing to bring them into this grand story that God's been doing all along. God tells the Israelites to gird up your loins as you're, as you're leaving Egypt, to prepare for what is ahead. But Peter says, apply this to your minds. So our minds need to be prepared. They need to be energized for thinking and preparation for battle. Well, how do we do this? Well, don't miss the context. What did Peter just tell us to do? Behold the scriptures. Right? Behold Christ in the scriptures. How do we prepare our minds? We fill it with this. We fill it with the truth from God that energizes our thinking. As we think rightly about God, we think rightly about ourselves, and we think rightly about everything around us. He says, gird up the loins of your minds. And then secondly, he says, we're to be sober-minded. This means to live and to think with clarity, with clarity of thought, right? Living with self-control. The opposite of sobriety is, of course, drunkenness, right? If we apply this to the mind, a mind that is drunk will not be prepared for action. It might struggle with the girding up of the loins, right? It will have a hard time accomplishing what is before. It will be disordered. It is unstable. It is unpredictable. It is prone to foolishness rather than holiness. Now, of course, this is a warning against physical intoxication, being drunk on alcohol, right? But there's a warning here that we can have a mental intoxication with the world around us. He's applying this to the mind. He says, don't let your mind be focused just on the things of this world. Don't let your mind be wrapped up in the kingdoms of the world rather than the kingdom of God because we can be lulled into a drowsy stupor by the things that are going on around us. And so are we preparing our minds? Are we thinking sober-minded by thinking on the things of God, thinking on the things of King Jesus and his kingdom that if you're in Christ, you've been made a citizen of? Are our minds preoccupied with that, or are we filling them with other things? Now, there's something else that preparing our minds for action should lead to. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Part of preparing our minds for action, part of thinking sober-mindedly in the hopes of setting our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed is to live in holiness, is to live in holiness. Part of living as citizens, as strangers, is to live in a way that matches the ethics of the kingdom we ultimately belong to and not the one that we're strangers in. Otherwise, we're going to communicate something very confusing to the world around us. Part of living as citizens, as strangers, is to live in a way that matches the ethics of the kingdom we really belong to and not the ethics of the kingdom that we are called to be strangers in to be sojourners, to be exiles. And so Peter says the ethic of the kingdom of God is to be holy. Now, holiness in the scriptures means to be set apart. And of course, when we think about holiness, we should first and foremost think about God. Right? God is holy in the sense that he is set apart. He is utterly unique compared to everything else. He has a distinct otherness about him compared to everything else. He's in a category all on his own, but yet Peter here says that we should be holy in all of our conduct, just as God is holy. That's a bit intimidating, right? Like, we're to be holy in everything that we do, just like God is holy? That feels like an impossible task. 
But Peter puts this little phrase in here to remind us of something crucial. He says, as he who called you is holy. Now, when God calls people, he's not like throwing a Facebook invite out where none of you respond in any way until you put maybe, right? He's not like waiting for a phone call. Like when God calls, stuff happens, right? Genesis 1, beginning of the scriptures, God calls out to the darkness. What does he say? Let there be light. Guess what happens? Light. And when God calls, it's an effectual call. And so in the same way, when God calls us as Christians, he's calling us out of darkness into light. He's calling us out of death into new spiritual resurrected life. And so this is not some mere, you know, well, if God calls you, no, no, God has called you. He has transferred you out of darkness into light. And therefore, there's something about that transfer that causes us to actually live holy lives. We can actually live holy lives because God's call is fully effective. So when we are born again to a living hope, this means that we now are set apart. We are made new. The old is gone. We are made citizens of the kingdom of God, which means that we no longer live like we used to. That's the simplest way to say that. And that's exactly what, po- what Peter points to right here, right? He says, rather than living in the passions of your former ignorance, now walk in holiness. Walk in obedience to King Jesus. Because you've been saved by Jesus, because you've been given new life, we can actually follow him. We can actually have the spiritual empowerment through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the community around us, to live holy lives. So we repent of the things that we used to do, and we turn from them to the Lord. I love what uh, I. Howard Marshall says. He says, being holy includes the sense of belonging to God, of people marked off and separate from the world by their way of life. Are we known for our holiness? Not in a smug, holier-than-thou way, are we known for our obedience? Does the world look at us and say, you know what, there's something different about them? That whole citizens of strangers thing we're trying to portray, right? There's something different about them. They seem to be living really consistently. There seems to be obedience. Their hope is in something other than this world. What's going on there? And then Peter, to drive this point home, quotes everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Verse 16 Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What in the world does Leviticus have to do with this, right? I mean, have you read Leviticus? Strange book. It's where all Bible in a Year programs go to die in February, right? We get there, we're like, all right, Valentine's Day, and then I'm reading about bodily fluids. Yeah, that's not really fitting, right? So what's going on with Leviticus? Why in the world would Peter quote that book? I told you I was going to try to practice what I just preached, right? So we just talked about all those ways that we read the Old Testament. How do we read Leviticus in light of this? Well, if you think back to Leviticus, God is preparing the people to enter the promised land. And as they're on their way, he instructs them about how God and his chosen people are going to coexist. Because right in the center of the camp was the tabernacle, where God's presence was housed. And that was the meeting place between God and men. But then around that, you got all these sinful, jacked up human beings, like all of us. So how is God going to coexist with his people? Because the holiness of God is dangerous in Leviticus. Not because there's something wrong with it, but because it's perfect. It's like the sun, right? Like the sun is our source of life, but you're not trying to get too close to the sun, right? There's a danger that comes from that. And so God is outlining, how do you as sinful people live near me who is perfect and holy without being destroyed? And so Leviticus is a list of things that cause you to be pure and things that cause you to be impure. 
and how to get back to a state of purity. It's not always sinful, by the way. It's just the reality of life. Sometimes we're impure, according to the Old Testament, because we lived back then. So how does Peter connect this to Jesus? How do we, on the other side of Jesus, understand what Leviticus is saying? You might remember in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Jesus shows up. And, and John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. Jesus comes as the tabernacle of God. And guess what? He's not inviting people to come and get purified and see him, is he? No, no, he's going out to where the impurity is, to where the unholiness is. And he's touching lepers, and their leprosy is not being transferred to him, right? What's happening? Purity, holiness. Jesus comes on the scene and the tabernacle is on the move. The tabernacle is going out. The purity and the holiness of God is wrapping up people inside of it. They're being made holy. Their lives are being changed. And now they're living as holy. Peter's pointing to the fact that Jesus comes as the tabernacle. He also comes as our perfect high priest and our perfect sacrifice. That's Leviticus in a nutshell. Jesus fulfills all of it. So all of that means that we are called to live in holiness. So where is there a lack of holiness in your life? Where is there something going on that maybe nobody even knows about, but you know it's wrong, you know it's not holiness, it's not obedience? And what does it look like to put that to death, to turn from our former ignorance, to repent because of the kindness of God, and to be healed, and to be reminded of the goodness of Jesus? You be holy as I am holy. There's a possibility for that to happen. This means we can't be passive, though. Right? The former ignorance is described as passions. Right? We get swept up in our passions. The old will always tug at us, and so we must be very careful. Practically, we must be active. We must prepare our minds for action. We must be on guard. We must gird up the loins of our mind for battle. We need to be ready for what is to come. So where is there a lack of holiness in your life? What does it look like to turn to the Lord? All right, last point, point three, a call to fear. At some point in time, I'll make point three equal to the others, but that point in time is not today. Sorry, we're going to keep moving. Um, A call to fear, look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So as we live as citizens, as strangers, there's a commandment here to conduct our lives with fear. Now, fear sounds like the exact opposite of what we've been talking about living in confidence in the gospel. So how can we live in fear, but yet have confidence in the gospel? Well, there's a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence and hope. That's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And the key to see what that means here is how Peter connects it with the fatherhood of God. Did you see that? If you call on him as father, then you conduct yourself with fear. There's a secret understanding here between the connection, the relationship between the fatherhood of God and fearing God. Now, I'm not sure what your relationship is with your father, if you have a relationship with your father. Oftentimes, that can be broken. That can be messy. And if that's you here this morning, I'm sorry. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And one of the good things about the gospel is that when we're saved, we're made children of our perfect father. And so if you had a crummy father here this morning, God is a perfect father. He's calling you back to himself. But if you think about a father for a moment, God the Father is what all fathers are supposed to be. And with a good relationship between children and parents, there ought to be some level of, like, reverence and fear there, right? Some of the parents in the room are like, okay, sure, right? But 
children, like there should be some level of respect for your parents, a healthy fear, you might say. We're honoring them in their position over us. And so Peter's calling us to have that kind of fear of our heavenly father, to recognize his authority and his position, to recognize that he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, he is omniscient, he knows everything. And Peter says that God judges impartially according to one's deeds. And I don't think if you're here and if you're in Christ, this is a judging of your deeds for salvation. Peter has been crystal clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there is a day that we will stand before the Lord, and there will be another kind of judgment. We will just give an account for our lives. But we must remember in this that he's our father. So a good father disciplines. A good father at times can feel strict to the child. Right? A good father has standards of living, rules that he wants his children to follow, but a good father doesn't destroy his kids. A good father is not out to totally wipe them away. No, his discipline and his rule and his guidance are from a place of love for his children. And so Peter says, during the time of your exile, as in you're going to be living somewhere that's not really home yet, but when you get home after this exile, after the stranger wandering of this world is over, you're going to stand before your father, right? Maybe sometimes you remember the phrase when you were a kid, like, well, we'll talk about this when your father gets home, right? Usually that was a little terrifying thought. But in one sense, we're going to talk about our lives when we're home with our father. And Peter says that's an incentive to holiness. Because remember, God, our father, sees all things, right? He knows when you did that good thing from a sinful motivation. Nobody else knows that. God, our father, knows that. He knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And so we'll stand before him, we'll give account, but he's our father. He's a good father, he loves us. And so that relationship with our father should drive us to holiness. It should drive us to want to honor him, to obey him, to not misrepresent him to the world around us. And so we pursue obedience, we pursue holiness, we flee from sin because we will stand before our father. Last thing I want to look at here, Peter just reminds us of why we can trust our father. And that's because we've been ransomed. We've been ransomed. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the precious things, not with perishable things, excuse me, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. To ransom means to buy back. Remember in college when you bought a $300 textbook and at the end of the semester you're like, I'm never using this again. I'm going to sell it back and they give you like 15 bucks. Remember that? Right? That's not how God's buyback works, right? Because on our bill is not money, but on our bill is sin. That is our debt, and there's not enough money in the world to pay for that debt. But you know what can pay for that debt? Blood. Precious blood. So he says, you're not ransomed by silver and gold. You're not ransomed by the things of this world, but you are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. The most valuable thing to ever walk this earth is the blood of Christ. Because it's a human blood, but it's a holy blood. And he, again, points them back to the Old Testament. He's without blemish. He's spotless. He is the Passover lamb. Right? Just as he told the Israelites, gird up your loins. We're leaving Egypt. How are we leaving Egypt? Because you're going to spread the blood of the lamb over your doorposts. And you will not suffer any consequences because the blood of the lamb will protect you. He's bringing them into this story. It's a precious blood that has been spilled for us, spilled so that we might be holy, spilled so that we can become children of God, spilled that we might live in a reverent 
in awe and in fear of who God is. And he closes just by pointing to Jesus again. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest. He appeared in the last times for the sake of you. Once again, it's for us who through him, through Christ, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. We can trust God as a good father because he has sent his son to die for us, to shed his blood for us so that we might be made holy. I don't know where that story hits you this morning. I don't know if you need to see that with fresh eyes. I don't know if that's the first time that you might be thinking, wow, that's incredible. That's the gospel. That's the story of the scriptures. So this morning, where do we need to behold Christ? Where do we need to stop beholding the things of this world and get wrapped up in the story of redemption? Where are we called to live in greater holiness? And as we do so, where are we called to trust our father? Where do we need to rightly fear him and be in awe of him and worship him for who he truly is. Listen, anybody can get in on this. Anybody in this room can get in on this. Our hope and prayer is that you are saved by that precious blood of Christ, and that you know him intimately through the scriptures. So this morning, whatever business you need to do with the Lord, I'd encourage you to do so for the rest of our service as we respond. Let's pray.